Hello and welcome to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. I'm Kevin Weber, your host. I've got a couple of extended segments for you today that I think you will enjoy. Uh, And a short one too. I've got a little umpire spotlight that I've thrown in. I know I haven't done some of those recently, but I've got one for you for this episode. I got a, a listener email from um, one of my more consistent listeners, David Emerling, who's from Memphis, Tennessee. And he sent me uh, an email about umpire camps because that's something I've talked about from time to time here on the show. And uh, I was uh, going to you know, read that to you and, and share my thoughts on that and kind of give him a segment response to it. And um, you guys can listen and let me know what you think about that. The other segment I have, which I think is very important, particularly to all the guys out there that work college baseball, is about the NCAA major rule changes for 2021 and 2022. Um, I'm not even talking about the 22nd and you know 122nd clock and all that stuff that's in effect that they've made some changes to. I'll get to that in a different segment um, in a future show, but. Uh, there's some you know important and I think pretty solid rule changes that they've made for this next coming season that we all need to be aware of. So I go into some detail on those things. As I mentioned at the end of my last podcast, I was uh, scheduled to umpire one more doubleheader this last weekend. It's supposed to be uh, some three-man with a couple fellow college umpires, some 17U stuff. But here in Michigan, we got some really bad weather on Sunday and a bunch of rain and it was a pretty rainy day anyway. We maybe might have had an hour, hour and a half of time. We could have maybe got something in, but field would have been very saturated. So I don't think that would have even worked. So it got canceled. So for as far as I'm concerned, uh, my umpiring season's done. I was able to get in, you know, around 60 games or so, which isn't too bad, all things considered, with this pandemic. But uh, um, you know, wasn't quite what I was hoping for. Um, hopefully this next coming season, uh, will be a lot better and I'll get a few more opportunities and, and all of us will get more opportunities and be able to be out there and doing the thing that we like and making a little bit of money along the way. That's always a little bit nice, right? So in the coming weeks here, I plan to do some shows on important off season kind of topics, you know, staying in shape, uh, equipment and uniforms, that you might, you know, things you might want to look at for for those things, um, digging into your mechanics manuals and your rule books, and things you might want to study for those to keep your mind sharp and your body in the best shape you can, especially if you're in the cold weather places like I am, uh, so that we're ready to go once February and March rolls around. So that's what I got for you this week. Please sit back for another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. So I got an email from David Emerling, an umpire out of Memphis, Tennessee, and a very consistent listener and fan of the show, which I really appreciate. He's sent me other emails in the past uh, with always some interesting comments about something that uh, I had in one of my shows or 
um, you know, his viewpoint on something uh, in the umpiring world. And so he sent me a, a pretty good length email that, where I'm, I'm going to share some of that with you here in a moment and, and talk about it. Um, I think he brings up some good points about umpire camps in particular that um, maybe some of you are thinking or just a few things to think about. And, and I'll tell you what I think, which I guess it goes like this. Um, whatever David thinks or whatever I think is just our opinions and you know, obviously you can have your own opinion or agree or disagree with us, but I think it's an interesting conversation nonetheless. So David's email, which he sent a little bit ago, said to me, I noticed lately on your podcast, you've been talking a lot about umpire camps. Having umpired for nearly 30 years and having attended a few umpire camps myself, I'd have to say that I found them of decreasing value over time. One of the reasons may have been these were somewhat generic one-size-fits-all type camps where they do not make much of a distinction between a rookie umpire and an experienced umpire, often teaching the same basic things year after year. There simply isn't enough bang for your buck. I once attended a camp sponsored by Andy Fletcher, MLB umpire, that was actually a little of little value because it was too basic. Further, Andy was actually not a very good teacher. His assistants were far better. Even if there is a more advanced camp, like you mentioned, where the focus is on three-man mechanics, there still comes a point of diminishing return for what you learn versus what you paid. I'm not saying that I have nothing else to learn about umpiring. I learn something new every year, maybe every game, but it mostly comes from on-the-field experience where I'm often capable of self-critiquing my mistakes or my partner may mention something I had not considered. These are usually things that do not come up in umpire camps. Now, having said all this, here's what I really want to say, and I realize it may come across a bit cynical, but that's not my intent. Wouldn't you agree that some umpires attend these camps to actually showcase what they already do know instead of trying to learn something that they didn't know? You kind of make it sound that way in one of your podcasts when you were talking about a certain camp that you always sign up for. At some point, attending an umpire camp can be more about politics than it is about learning. I no longer need to attend a camp to learn timing, for instance. There was a time I did, but not any longer. I already know how important that is and how instinctively in, um, instinctively incorporate that, that in a way I umpire. When I use bad timing, I instantly know I screwed up. I wouldn't need to pay $250 during a weekend camp for someone to tell me that. The key to attending an umpire camp is this. One, if you're a fairly new umpire, definitely attend an umpire camp. There's lots to learn, and you may not even absorb it all. Attend again. Two, make sure that you attend a camp that is experience appropriate. Cookie cutter camps that teach you the same things year after year will eventually bring diminishing returns. And three, if you're attending for political reasons, at least be honest with yourself as to why you're there. Sure, you still may learn something new, but it's often more more of a better technique than it is something truly new. Um, And then he... You know, says he likes the podcast and usually listens to it. Well, first, thanks for your email, David, and thanks for you know being a listener of the show. I really appreciate that. Um, I'll just kind of go through a few of these things and and give you my opinion on some of those things. Um, I guess the first thing is umpiring. Um, umpiring camps are they p- potentially political? As in, you know, it might get you better assignments or something like that. Yeah, yeah, they are. I think most people would um, definitely agree with that, that they are. There's no way that an assigner um, can go see every potential umpire 
that they might want to use, especially if you're talking like collegiate umpiring. All right, um, if you're if you're a Division One umpire in NCAA baseball and and you want to uh, work a higher level of Division One, you know, a certain conference or something like that, they might see you uh, on television. I mean, the streaming kind of things, you know, through the universities and stuff like that. So you might get a better look there. But if you're a JUCO guy, NAI guy, D3 guy, D2 guy, though they do stream a little more of those now, that's really hard. So they want to see who they're going to put out there. I mean, that's high-level ball, and they want to um, see that somebody can handle the situation at that the level that they expect. If you are in front of them at a camp, you know, particularly if you're calling balls and strikes, but also how you work the bases and those kind of things, um, that definitely helps you out because they actually get to see you work and they might assign you. Um, you know, just as someone that assigns high school baseball and also, you know, different levels of travel baseball in the summer, there's certain kind of games I have that I don't put somebody on unless I kind of seen them work or, or I really got a report from somebody that they said they're really good. All right. Um, that's the way it works, man. Because, you know, who you send out there or who they send out there is a reflection on them every single time. So if they send somebody that's not capable of, of handling the level that they're sending them to, um, you know, they might not be assigning for that school or that league, uh, any longer. So they really have to watch it. Um, so yeah, there is that politicalness to it. You know, you mentioned that there's certain uh, camps that maybe are a little too basic for some guys. Yeah, there are. I mean, um, sometimes like uh, there might be a, a high school level camp that they have that they run. We have to run camps through our association here, and I know every association in the state of Michigan has to do that. I assume there's similar things in other states. And those, you know, they are kind of basic. You're working on timing, you're working on proper stance and technique um, uh, on plate work. Um, basic things for um, working the bases, particularly two-man. Those are things that need to be taught uh, to people, and some people you know, maybe need to do it a couple times before they really get it. Um, so, yeah, that's true. Maybe those aren't as useful for guys that have been around for a while, like yourself. Um, I understand that. However, three-man camps. I mean, I, I've been to the three-man camp like five times or something like that, all right? And it took me probably three years, three times, to actually feel like I'm pretty comfortable with it. And then I still don't get many opportunities to work three-man during a season. I'll work 100 and whatever games, and I might be lucky if I get a couple three-man opportunities if I kind of try to help set those up. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to get some more B1 opportunities that are th three-man, but even so, I mean, I might only get two or three. I mean, it's not like I'm going to be working the SEC here or something, you know. So I I kind of need to have that as a refresher. Yeah, there's the political, potential political connections there where people see you're going and everything. Now, does that help you? Yeah, it can. That's right. I mean, somebody's willing to put in the time to make sure they learn it. And I do learn stuff. I mean, there's, there's things on three-man that... Only certain people that really are experienced with it can help you with. Um, and, you know, that, that can be the case sometimes with two-man, advanced two-man camps, too. I mean, there are some guys that will work with a partner all the time, and, and they think that guy's a pretty solid umpire. Maybe he's okay. But there are intricacies that certain guys don't see that you work with. They can't really help you. And also, maybe you are a more um, seasoned vet 
and they see something wrong with, I don't know, you know, how you're not getting, you know, pitches at the knees or something like that. And there might be a guy that doesn't want to say anything to you because you're, you're been around. If you go to a camp, they see that, they're going to say something, you know, whether you like it or not. At least, you know, if it's a good camp, they're going to do that. So I think you're more likely to get the kind of feedback you might need to make yourself a little bit better. Like, for example, um, at my last camp, you know, I, I used the, you know, because the podcast is called The Hammer, I used the hammer strike signal. And uh, one of the instructors, you know, the way I call my strike, um, sometimes I get a little aggressive with it. And um, he mentioned that to me and that maybe, you know, having it in a, a little bit different manner, the way I hammer my strikes would look a little bit better. Um and I agreed with him, of course, and I'm going to try to work that into what, I, what I'm doing. But there's a lot of guys I probably work with um, that probably don't say anything about that to me, you know, um, especially guys that haven't been around, you know, or a guy that I assign games to if I work with them. There's only maybe a couple that might say something, maybe, all right? But, you know, I appreciate that when I go to a camp that somebody's going to say that to me. Um and then there's so many intricacies to three-man camp, to three-man mechanics that I don't know, and so many things that I have to think about that it's always valuable to me to go. And, and also, like in collegiate baseball, you know, there's the advanced four-man camps, and usually those are invite-only too. I mean, this three-man camp is as well. But you know, if you get invited to those, you really gotta, you know, you gotta go. You gotta be seen there. That's there's the political part of it, of course. But there's, you know, intricacies to four-man because people don't work four-man that often either, even though it is maybe slightly easier, I think, than um, three-man. I think three-man is a little bit more complicated in certain ways. I guess the reason, I guess, three-man is more complicated because if you don't make the proper rotation, you your your crew is really up, up the river without a paddle, all right? There's more um, opportunities for that, thir- that fourth guy in four-man to pick up a situation if somebody misses a rotation you've got that guy like oh he can just kind of scooch over there and and um cover something you know whereas in three man if, if you know two guys go out and i mean you're in you're in trouble all right there's more opportunity for a base to not be covered um if somebody's not doing what they're supposed to be doing particularly third base and, and home plate right and those are not good bases to not have covered so those are a couple of the topics you mentioned there um I don't know what kind of uh, camps and stuff they they have available in the Tennessee area for um, like collegiate ball. I, I'm not. I don't recall from our past uh, communications if you um, do a collegiate ball or, or high school ball and summer ball or, or exactly what levels you, you're working. I'm, I'm sure you work you know summer ball and and high school ball, but I don't remember if you work collegiate ball. Um, I know we've got some good stuff here in the Midwest. I mean the camps I've gone to are, are really good. Um, I know other parts of the country maybe aren't as lucky. I don't know what's available in Tennessee. I know there's some good stuff out on the East Coast that people are doing. There's some good camps that they run um, in like the, you know, early spring or February down in Florida. Um, I'm sure there's a few good ones out west too. But, you know, I know certain parts of the country or certain states, it's a little bit rougher um, to get to a a camp that can really help you. Um, Whereas I know within... A day's drive of me there's probably two or three each year that are really good if I wanted to go to them I mean I I go to the one here because it's local and I don't have to pay for a hotel and all the other kind of stuff that goes with that like a lot of guys do 
Um, so I, I really don't have an excuse not to go. I mean, um, I do get better. I, I like the camaraderie of the guys there. I think it has helped me to move along in my career because I have been able to prove myself a bit. And, um, and I think I've earned that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think any, you know, nobody's giving you anything. We know that, right? Um, if somebody doesn't think you can handle some assignment that they have, they're not going to give it to you. I mean, even if you're like all buddy-buddy and kissing up on somebody. And I see guys do that. That drives me nuts. I never do any of that stuff. I go there. I do the best I can. If somebody notices me and and it helps me out, great. If If they don't, then I guess I wasn't good enough. <laughs> That's kind of the way I look at it, right? I don't need to like tell somebody how good I am or not. You know, they'll figure it out for themselves, right? Um, yeah, and if I have... You know, somebody in my corner that's telling a certain assigner that maybe I can handle something that they've got, that's great. Um, if they don't, then I got to disprove it or I just work what I got. That's the way I look at it. So that's kind of my take on what you have there. I understand where you're coming from, but I think that the biggest thing is it depends on what kind of camps you have available to you. And um, I do agree with you on some of the on the lower level camps that maybe that's there's a there's a point that it's not very useful to um, experienced guys, but um, there are some camps out there that are definitely going to be useful at some point if you if you uh, search them out. Sometimes you might have to travel a little bit, but there's something out there. So again, David, thank you for the email. I appreciate it. I appreciate you um, listening to the show. And if any of the other listeners out there would like to send me an email or leave me a, a voicemail through the Anchor app or any other way you want to communicate with me. I, I'm really happy to get the stuff that you guys send me and, and your opinions. And, you know, that kind of makes the show um, worthwhile to do because then it, I realize people are actually listening and they, um, you know, find it worthwhile. So there you go. There's my take on some stuff with the umpire camps. And hopefully that's useful. And I'm sure you guys have your own opinions on that. And feel free to share them with me. Like to do a quick umpire spotlight. I haven't done one of those in a little bit. Uh, this one is on Randy Crystal, um, who was a longtime collegiate umpire, and he was the uh, 2020 recipient of the National Collegiate Umpire Award, which basically like gets you into the you know college baseball Hall of Fame kind of thing. That's basically what it is. Um, Crystal worked uh, nine. College World Series and 25 regionals among many assignments. Um, he worked uh, the College World Series in Omaha in 1978, 79, 82, 83, 86, 87, 90, 95, and 96. Um, he worked 24 regionals between 1976 and 2000. Three NCAA Super Regionals between 98 and 2000. He worked the NAIA World Series when it was in Lubbock, Texas in 1980 and 81. And he worked the Olympic Games in Los Angeles in uh, 1984. One of his other career highlights is that he worked the 1984 American League Championship Series um, when the regular umpires walked out and were on strike. Um, 
I know there's some umpires out there that uh, would not really appreciate that he was technically a scab umpire, but he took that opportunity. He was also a um, collegiate football referee, and he worked both the uh, 1996 Rose Bowl, the 1997 Sugar Bowl, 2003 Fiesta Bowl, among many others and such. So that's quite an honor. He was um, an umpire more in the southern part of the country, particularly Texas, Worked a lot with John Bible, who was the recipient of this award last year, who um, had a stellar collegiate umpiring career as well and then became a, the coordinator of um, you know NCAA baseball for a while there and many other roles that he's held. And a, a big contributor, John Bible, is to Referee Magazine. Lots, writes lots of articles and stuff there. So anyway, Randy Crystal is um, one of those guys that uh, was able to put in a long career in college baseball and uh, was honored for that. So there's your umpire spotlight. Well, if you're a um, cold weather state umpire like me here in Michigan, then we're pretty much entering the the off season and our umpiring is done for the season until you know it gets warm hopefully by march um i know if you're a warm weather guy you're probably gonna work all the way through the year but for most of us we start going into our our postseason and off season routines you know trying to stay in shape if we can um trying to get our heads inside rule books and uh, mechanics manuals and doing what we can that way um, maybe watching some old baseball games or something like that. One of the things we got to look at during this time is changes in rules for whatever rule sets that we work. So if you work, uh, you know, Little League or USSSA or something like that, then there could be some changes. So you should take a look at it. If you work high school ball um, and there's federation rule changes, you definitely need to be aware of those. And there were some that uh, happened right before this next season that we'll talk about at a different time that will be in effect that um, I think people are ready to to use, you know, with different things with the way that you can have lineups and such, if you recall. So we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later because we're going to have to, you know, we didn't get that experience, I guess, to um, put those things in practice. And some of the same things in NCAA baseball and the other aspects of collegiate baseball that are out there. There are several changes for the 2021 and 2022 um, NCAA baseball, and I want to talk about those for a few minutes. Um, One of them is um, dealing with foul tips, Rule 2.37 and 7.8. And so they updated the definition for a foul tip, and they say now it's a batted ball that goes sharp and direct from the bat to the catcher and is legally caught. It's not a foul tip unless caught. Any foul tip is a strike and the ball is in play. So they got rid of some of the wording and this allows now that a foul tip no longer has to first touch the catcher's hand or glove before being legally caught by the catcher. Sometimes that happens. It seems like almost an impossible play, but some of these catchers, man, they're pretty dang good and they can uh, make that happen. So there you go. Um, That's the new definition of it. They also changed or updated the um, definition of a play or an attempted play because this can be confusing. So an additional definition for the term play or attempted play to identify that a play or attempted play shall be interpreted as a legitimate effort by a defensive player who has possession of the ball to retire a runner. 
This may include an actual attempt to tag a runner, a fielder running toward a base with a ball in an attempt to force or tag a runner, or actually throwing to another defensive player in an attempt to, tire, to retire a runner. The fact that the runner is not out is not relevant, and a fake or feign to throw shall not be deemed a play or an attempted play. And the rationale behind this is, you know, throughout the playing rules, base awards, um, appeals, batting out of order, stuff like that, there are references to when um, a time has occurred, like before the next pitch, play, or an attempted play. However, there's no definition of what defines a play. So this current definition they're putting in place um, of a play only references an umpire starting or restarting the game and stuff. So um, with this addition here that they're putting in for this year, that kind of clarifies that situation. A third thing that they are changing is um, the re-entry rule. This is going to be rule 5.5K. It established a permissible re-entry rule for a player only in the instance of a potential uh, concussion. You know, for this is like a safety thing, an injury thing. So in 5.5K, a player who exhibits signs, symptoms, or behaviors consistent with a concussion uh, must be immediately removed and receive appropriate medical evaluation. The player may not return until cleared by the appropriate medical personnel. So 55K1, while the evaluation is taking place, the injured player, whether a starter or a substitute, may be replaced by any eligible player who has not yet participated in the game. And then 55K2, if the injured player is cleared to resume participation, the player may re-enter in the original lineup spot only. A player may only re-enter the game one time. The temporary replacement player may again participate in the game as a substitute in the same lineup spot only. And then 55K3, if the injured player resumes participation and is later substituted with a player other than the temporary replacement, the temporary replacement may return to the game in the same spot in the lineup. 55K4, if a temporary replacement player is substituted for pinch runner, pinch hitter, defensive substitution, that player may not re-enter the game. 55K5, if a temporary replacement player is removed for a concussion evaluation, then that player may they may only re-enter in the position, that position in the lineup. And then finally, rule 55K6. If a team has no remaining eligible players, a starter or substitute who has previously participated in the game may replace the injured player. So I know there's a lot to that, but um, the rationale here is, um, you know, the, pr the proposal is intended to improve student-athlete safety and provide the opportunity to re-enter the contest if cleared by medical personnel following the concussion protocols that are in the rule books and such. So, you know, hey, more safety, that's a good thing. Um, a little bit complicated there, but um, it seems pretty fair if, um, if, if you consider it. Another clarification that they made was to the fight rule, 5.16. They clarify that any team personnel other than coaches who leave the dugouts or bullpen to enter the field at the time of a potential altercation or fight shall be ejected. Ejections would carry a one-game suspension unless the individual physically violates the fight rule. So the rationale behind this clarification is it establishes a method and a penalty for team personnel who leave the dugout 
or bullpen at the time of an altercation. This proposal is intended to prevent further escalation and unsportsmanlike conduct. So we got stuff for, you know, players and such, but, you know, if the trainer's going out there or the ball boy or, you know, whoever, okay, uh, somebody else that's um, part of this uh, of the ball club in some other fashion. Another change or clarification that they had was to um, live ball, Rule 6.1G. It clarifies that the, a live ball rule as follows. If a thrown or batted ball that remains in live ball territory accidentally hits a spectator, authorized on-field personnel, or an animal, the ball is live. Note, if a pitch ball strikes a bird in flight or other animal on the playing field, the pitch is nullified and play shall be resumed with the previous count. All right, so the rationale here is is intended to uh, distinguish the difference between a thrown or batted ball inadvertently hitting an animal or authorized on-field personnel and a pitch ball striking an animal. They've had these on the NCAA umpire tests in the past, and I would anticipate that they'll have um, some question with that on this year's test as well. One of the most significant changes is to the designated hitter rule, which in college baseball is a bit complicated. Um, that's rule 7.2. So they simplify the current designated hitter rule to permit the starting pitcher to be co-listed in the lineup as the pitcher and designated hitter. Further, they require that the listed designated hitter must bat at least one time unless the opposing team changes pitchers or the designated hitter becomes injured or ill before the um, player's spot in the lineup comes to bat. The rationale behind this is intended to, you know, to make the current rule similar to the pro baseball rule by simplifying the designated hitter rule while maintaining the ability of the two-way player, you know, the pitcher DH, in the collegiate game. So there's, you know, more um, to that rule, and that's definitely something that should be reviewed pretty much every year. I mean, I, I put my um, DH, like, you know, little card that um, tells me all the different situations in my, in my um, lineup card holder. Um, I might have to redo that now since this is changing a bit, but still, that's a rule that you got to know because if something quirky happens, you got to know how to handle it. Another change that they have is uh, for the batter interference drop third strike. This is rule 7.11.H. They clarify interference here. Specifically, after a third strike that's not caught by the catcher, and the batter runner clearly hinders the catcher and the catcher's attempt to field the ball. The batter runner's out, ball's dead, and all of the runners return to the bases they occupied at the time of the pitch, regardless of the number of outs. If the pitch ball deflects off the catcher or umpire and subsequently touches the batter runner, it's not considered interference unless, in the judgment of the umpire, the batter runner clearly hinders the catcher in their attempt to field the ball, regardless of the number of outs. So the rationale here is to simplify the administration of this rule regardless of the number of outs and whether the action is intentional or unintentional, which is very difficult to judge, of course, right? So if the batter runner hinders the catcher in any way on a drop third strike, you know, kicks the ball unintentionally, hinders the catcher from making a play, anything like that, time should be called immediately 
Bad runners out. All the runners return to their last illegally occupied base, regardless if they were stealing or not. All right. So that's a significant change as well that everybody should try to be aware of uh, when they start their games. And again, that uh, definitely seems like a potential test question for this year's uh, umpire exam. Another change, interference and thrown bat. This is rule 7.11.N. Clarifies that if a whole bat is thrown into fair or foul territory, the or foul is the important part here, whether intentionally or not, and it interferes with a defensive player's attempt attempting to make a play on the ball, interference shall be called. So the rationale to establish clear, clearer guidance whether interference has occurred in situations of a fielder attempting to make a play when a bat is thrown in foul territory. Seems like a good rule to me. Um, you know, you should be aware of where you're throwing your bat. And if you're careless with it, then there should be a consequence. And that sounds fine to me. You know, some guys are, are very careless with their bat. So again, another potential uh, question on the tests for that one, I would say. Next one, force play slide rule. That's rule 8.4. It clarifies that the force play slide rule does not apply to the batter runner at first base as well as establishing that the other runners are not required to slide until they are in the vicinity of the base. Um, so hopefully most of us know about slides and such, and that, you know, guys are not required to slide. They're just required to slide legally, right? If they do slide, it needs to be a legal one. So anyway, the rationale here is this provides additional clarification of the slide rule as it pertains to a better runner and other runners. And um, the point about it being at first base is definitely something I'm sure they'll come up with some kind of question for us on the test. All right. Uh, the next uh, rule changes that they had was uh, base beyond. That's rule 8.6.A.3. And that, establish, that establishes that when a runner has gone beyond the base and must, and must retouch that base before returning to the previous base or bases in order, uh, specifically a runner is considered to have past a base if the player has both feet on the ground beyond the back edge of the base or beyond the edge of the base in the direction in which the player is advancing. The direction the runner is advancing determines the edges of the base when defining when a runner has passed a base. The rationale here is to provide clarification as to what part of the base the runner must have passed to be required to retouch the base before going back to the previous base safely. This can be tricky. I mean, this is something that doesn't happen too often, um, but uh, you got to get it right when it does happen. So definitely a good uh, clarification there. Uh, the next two deal with pitchers and uh, wind up and set. Okay, the first one is set. That's rule. 9.1a and they uh, change the rule and cut out a bunch of the wording and they basically say now the windup um, is uh, the pitcher shall stand facing the batter with their pivot foot in contact with the pitcher's plate and the other foot free and the windup position a pitcher is permitted to have their free foot on the rubber in front of the rubber behind the rubber or off the side of the rubber. The pitcher may not take a second step toward home plate with either foot in his delivery of the pitch. 
and then it goes on from there. From this position, blah, 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 it's the same kind of stuff. So anyway, the rationale here is to allow the pitcher more latitude and to provide clarification in the pitching rules for more equitable enforcement of this. They had a, a similar kind of thing here with the set position, which is 9.1b. And they say um, they're going to change the first sentence of the rule to read, the set position shall be indicated when the pitcher stands facing the batter with his pivot foot in, in contact with and his other foot in front of the pitcher's plate holding the ball in both hands in front of his body and coming to a complete stop. An additional paragraph will be added to read, with a runner or runners on base, a pitcher will be presumed to be pitching from the set position if the pitcher stands with their pivot foot in contact with and parallel to the pitcher's plate and their other foot in front of the pitcher's plate unless the pitcher notifies the umpire that he will be pitching from the wind-up position under such circumstances prior to, be, to the beginning of an at-bat. A pitcher will be permitted to notify the umpire that the pitcher is pitching from the wind-up position within an at-bat only in the event of 1, a substitution by the offensive team, or 2, immediately upon the advancement of one or more runners. Example, after one or more base runners advance, but before the delivery of the next pitch. So the rationale here is, you know, provide clarification in the pitching rules for more equitable enforcement of that and um, allow a guy that has that kind of hybrid, well, that's really what it is, um, motion that he has um, from the, um, you know, wind-up that he causes wind-up to say that that's what he's doing so that, you know, he's not going to try to pick somebody off or it might be considered a balk, right? Also, they're... Clamping down on pitchers as far as a pitcher applying a foreign substance. This is rule 9.2E. Uh, and establish a stronger penalty for a pitcher using a foreign substance on the ball as follows. All right, The pitcher shall not have on their person or possession any foreign substance. The pitcher or defensive player or players shall not apply any foreign substance or moisture to the ball or to the pitching hand or fingers or or do anything to deface the ball. The pitcher may use bare hands to rub up the ball. The penalty now for E is eject the pitcher from the game. And note, if the pitcher exportiates on their hands, ball, or glove, or rubs the ball on their glove, person, or clothing, and in the judgment of the umpire, the pitcher did not intend to alter the characteristics of the baseball, then the umpire may, at the umpire's discretion, warn the pitcher in lieu of ejecting the pitcher from the game. If the pitcher persists in violating the rule, this rule, the umpire shall then eject the pitcher from the game. So the rationale behind all this is establishing a strong penalty for the use of a foreign substance on the ball. The current penalty would require a second use of a foreign substance, as is not mentioned having a foreign substance in the player's possession for the player to be ejected from the game. So, you know, if a guy's clearly doing that, then you can get rid of him. Um, if you think it's just accidental, you can warn him. And then if he's going to keep doing it, obviously get rid of him. You should take charge anyway, right? Next rule, kind of a minor one, but one that kind of makes things a little bit clearer, I guess, is uh, the one-foot catcher's box. That's 9.3.i. And they modify it to read the pitcher pitches while the catcher is not in the catcher's box the catcher must have at least one foot and it used to be both feet 
um, one foot inside the catcher's box until the pitcher begins the pitching motion. It used to be when it leaves the pitcher's hand. So they changed that around. This, um, the catcher is required to have both feet at the box at the time of the pitch. And this change, you know, provides a more enforceable playing rule for umpires, depending on where the catcher sets up to receive a pitch. <laughs> and with that old rule, if you really start looking at things, there's probably a lot of, uh, you know, catcher's box that, uh, could have been called if they really wanted to. Another rule is more for the uh, high-end umpires that are working the, the bigger D1 kind of games that have uh, scoreboards and video boards and lots of audio stuff going on. Um, if you're working Juco games and stuff like that, like most of us, you know, down at that level, um, or even D2 and D3 games, you don't get a lot of it. Uh, but for this one, they modified the current rule to say, any instance in which an umpire has made a judgment call may be replayed only one time at regular speed and must be replayed before the next batter for either team, before they, you know, the next batter enters the dirt area around home plate. An unlimited number of replays may be played on the video board at any speed only after play is under video review by the umpires. However, no replays shall be shown on the video board once a decision has been made by the umpires and or replay official. All right, so this allows stadiums to have the cap uh, the capability to show different angles and speeds of a play without jeopardizing the integrity of the um, video process. Also along the scoreboards, video and audio stuff, which is all like Appendix B, um, they modified um, the live game action may be displayed on the stadium video board. So close-ups of the batter, and the on-deck circle are also permitted. Live game action may be displayed once there is contact between the bat and the pitch and must cease once the next batter for either team enters the dirt circle. Um, live game action is, um, if live game action is not displayed, uh, a still shot, statistics, or other non-moving pictures must remain on the screen until the batter finishes the plate experience. This enhances, you know, uh, fan experiences that are there, if, if we are able to have a good number of fans at these ball games anyway. So they're trying to uh, help the situation because, you know, they want college baseball to grow, of course. And then one other thing with the um, with uh, getting the call right and, and video review, um, they clarify that if a coach... Coach's challenge is successful in overturning a call. The coach will retain the challenge to use if needed later in the game. And this enhances the game to continue, you know, getting the call correct. If there is some incorrect calls, they should have that opportunity again. And then the last thing is uh, visual inspection and bat testing, which is um, a thing that's expanded in college baseball. It establishes that the following guidelines for NCAA require bat testing beginning with the 2021 season. One, a visual inspection of the bat. Two, conduct a ring test. Three, conduct bat barrel compression, compression testing. So all bats used in competition must undergo the bat testing procedure and be identified as approved with a dis, you know, destructible sticker that they'll put on there. And the effective date for barrel compression uh, D2 and D3 has been delayed till 2022 uh, championship season. So if you work those levels, you don't have to worry about it quite yet. This, you know, clearly defines the progress that must take place prior to the competition to use legal and approved bats during competition to ensure the integrity of the competition, you know. 
So those are the changes that uh, they're putting in place for 2021 and 2022 in NCAA baseball. If you have any comments or questions about those, feel free to send them my way. I'll, I'll let you know what I think. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I have my opinions, but uh, you know, I try to be as much of an expert in it as I can. But there are plenty of other people that are more so than me. Um, I think some of those are some, some good changes and some things are moving in the right direction. I'm, I'm glad they're doing that. Uh, but, you know, they've got several pages of them. So we've all got to dig into those books and study them and read those things over and make notes on it. Be ready for the testing, and, and more importantly than anything, be ready to apply it in a game situation. That concludes this episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast. Thank you for listening and sticking with me all the way through. I really do appreciate that. I can always tell uh, when I look at the analytics for the podcast, you know, how, how long people are listening and and uh, where you're from and all those kind of things and the age level, just general things like that. It doesn't tell me specifically who it is, but uh, um, I know I'm, I'm getting people to, to listen and, and some of my recent episodes have done pretty well. I mean, I my all-time greatest episode that I had is called Drawn a Line, and that was about situation early on in the baseball season when the Michigan player was ejected and for drawing a line, you know, when he, they were out west on a on an early season um, road trip. And so that got quite a few listeners. But a more recent episode I had um, just from a few episodes ago called Try to Be a Stoic Umpire uh, just surpassed it uh, this week by one listen. <laughs> okay, so... Um, if you're looking for some older episodes, if you're newer to the show, you, you know, go back and listen to some of the stuff I have. I usually list in the show notes and obviously in the introduction as well um, what I'm talking about for those particular episodes. And there might be some things that might be useful or interesting to you to listen to. I know whenever I listen to podcasts, um, I, I'm just I'm just kind of a completist kind of guy, you know. So if I'm going to listen to a podcast, I'll go and I'll listen to the whole thing um, if I like it. I mean, obviously, if I listen to one episode and I don't like it, I'm I'm not going to listen to it anymore. But if I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, this is pretty solid, man. I like this. Um, then I'll go back and I want to be like the person that knows everything about that that show, that podcast. I mean, I'm a big Beatles fan, for example. I've listened to everything I can get my hands on for the Beatles, sometimes, many, many times. If I find a new musician or artist that I like, I'm going to really delve into that and I know all of it. If I like a book series, I'm going to read all the books, you know. Um, I'm just, that's just the way I am. Um, if I'm going to be a baseball umpire, which I am, uh, I want to know all the rule sets I can and read all the rule books I can and know the history of it the best I can. Still always got to learn things you forget that you think you knew to begin with, but, uh, that's the way I kind of jump into things. I only do baseball. I've talked to my wife in the past about like trying to, hey, you know, when we retire or something, or maybe if you want to start, we, we should do like volleyball or something like that. That's something we could do together. And I'm not, I'm not saying volleyball is an easy sport to officiate. I don't think anything's easy. You know, there's always challenges. But um, I would be the kind of guy that would just dive into all that. And I'd want to know all the different rules and the techniques and what you're supposed to do. And I want to do it correctly. Um, just like I do for umpiring, be the same kind of thing. I, I'm, I don't go half in on something. Those kind of guys do bother me, you know, that I work with because I know we've all worked with those kind of guys or just kind of half in. Maybe they're just in it for the money. And again, it's okay to get paid to umpire. I'm not saying that because we all 
we all do it because we get paid. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. But the guys that don't put their best effort into it um, and are just there collecting the paycheck, that's a little bit annoying. I'm not a guy like that for sure. And I don't appreciate others that are. But sometimes you get stuck with them. So you just got to make the best of it, right? Anyway, in the coming weeks, uh, I've got a few things in mind that I want to touch on with you guys. Some of them are topics I, I've touched on in the last offseason, but I think they're always worthwhile to talk about every offseason. Conditioning, number one, making yourself as flexible and strong as possible um, in your cardiovascular system, the best it can be, especially as we age. I know some of you are a little bit on the older side, like I'm getting to be. Um, and we got to make sure we do that. If you're that 22-year-old, you know, it's not quite as big a deal, but most of us are not there, right? We're well past that time. So we know that, you know, injuries can be more frequent and easier to get. So we've got to do what we can so that when we get out on the baseball field, especially if it's cold or even when it's hot, you know, to make sure that we are in the top condition we can be in so we can perform well and also not get injured because we certainly don't want that. This is the time to take inventory on lots of things like your equipment. So I'm going to be talking about that in the coming weeks. It's the time to get into those rule books, to familiarize yourself with any rule changes. I talked about some of those in this episode. To get into your mechanics manuals and make sure you're familiar with those or any changes that are being made. Um, if you're somebody that's maybe moving up a little bit and you might work, you know, three or four man mechanics to make sure that you're studying those consistently, at least weekly, right? And looking over things and doing what you can in the off-season to be as familiar as possible with those mechanics. So those are a few things that I'm going to talk about in the coming weeks, among other things. And usually I have things that just kind of pop, pop into my head or fall into my lap. And I'm like, oh, that would be a good thing for the uh, podcast. And I just go with it. So that's what I've got. If you've got any feedback for me, don't be afraid at all to let me know or any show ideas, I'm always looking for an idea for a segment, and I'm happy to accommodate that in future shows. Until then, if you can, keep calling strikes.